0: Good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with everyone this morning. Uh, My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor. If you're uh, new here, we're glad to have you with us. Glad that you could worship with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 today. Uh, We're beginning a brand new series. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or follow on the screen behind me, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where we'll be today. We're really going to cover the whole chapter, but we're going to just read the first eight verses. Uh, But as you turn there, John made an announcement earlier that we have a big serve day coming up August 27th. And I I want to personally invite you to come to that because uh, this is a big deal. Our church is starting a new church. So this this has been going on for two years. Uh, We've been praying for this, working towards this. Uh, Some of you have been giving towards this. Uh, Now this new church that we're starting in Bartow called Oak City Church is launching in September. And so our church is going to join with their church to basically go uh, hang door hangers in the neighborhoods around the church and let people know uh, that the church is starting. And so we're excited to have... Just kind of a big serve day together, and then a meal together, so the two groups can come together. We can share a meal with all the people who are a part of Oak City. So we would love for uh, at least forty of us to be there. That's our goal. Right now we got ten people, so I'm saying I need thirty more people in this room to show up, so we got enough bodies to do the work and to have a good party. All right, so uh, we want you to be there August 27th. It'll be that afternoon. Uh, let's read First Samuel chapter one, verses one through eight. 1 through 8. Hear the reading of God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, The Work of Waiting. The Work of Waiting. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we come in this place, uh, you promise to meet us here. You say where there's two or three gathered in your name, you are here amongst us. And so, Lord, as you are here, we ask that you would speak. Speak to us in your word. Help us to hear. Help us to listen, to know what you're saying to us in the scriptures, that we might be transformed in our whole being, that our heart, our mind, our very soul would be transformed today. God, we're asking that you would do it for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Henry Royce grew up uh, in poverty and was forced to begin uh, working at the young age of nine. And when he grew up, he became a, a large, bearded, solid man. He, he was known for uh, being uh, kind of a perfectionist with a hard work ethic, and he he became one of the most famous engineers in all of Europe. He was well respected, well known, kind of a self-made man. And in contrast to that, there was another man named Charles Rolls, and Charles Rolls grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Like he grew up with all that you could imagine, and he was not necessarily a hard worker, but he was brilliant. He could get by because he knew so much, and he was educated at Cambridge, and, and became an incredible engineer as well in his own right. And They had a mutual friend, and this mutual friend said that these two were destined to meet. He had to get them together, and so he set up a lunch at the Manchester Hotel where they would meet. And As soon as they sat down, they started to talk, and they hit it off right away. They became instant friends. Rolls met Royce. And now the two are are having this great conversation. They're they're getting to know each other. It went so well that Rolls decided to let Royce drive his car after lunch. Take it for a spin around the block. And, And this is the car that he had been working on. He had been engineering and designing. And so he took it around. And as soon as he got back, he said this. He said, I can sell as many of these as you want as long as the name on the front is Rolls Royce. And the rest is history. It was the turning point that they needed. It was a turning point in their stories. It was a turning point, really, for the car manufacturing world. It it was a turning point. Now, life is full of these kind of turning points, right? You can look back over your life, and you can see turning points where you saw this one thing that changed everything in your life. Many of those are positive things, right? You look back and you think, you know, the first time you held a child in your hands in in the delivery room and you realized, I am now a mother, I am now a father, right? That that changes everything. Or maybe when you fell in love with the person of your dreams and and you proposed to that person or you said yes to that person and now you know this is going to change everything in my life. Or maybe it was that promotion you had been working for so long in your career, year after year, and you finally get the promotion and your career changed. Right? It can be those kinds of good turns, right? But it can also be a painful turn. Maybe it's the car accident that changed everything in your family. Maybe it was a friend that abandoned you or betrayed you, or maybe it was some tragic injury that still plagues your life today. Whatever it may be, there's these turning points that can be positive or negative, but life is full of them. Life is full of these turning points. And as we come to this text today, we're starting a brand new series in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel, if you want to picture it like this, is one massive turning point in the Bible. It is a huge turning point in the history of Israel, because, his, or because Israel's history right now, they are in a waiting stage. They're waiting, because if you look back in what happens before 1 Samuel, you have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a period in Israel's history where uh, there, there was just a lot of chaos. They were in the promised land, but they weren't quite settled yet. They were in the promised land, but but there were these people that would come along to try to help them along the way because they would fall into sin, they would fall into oppression, and things would get really bad, And, and next thing you know, they couldn't deliver themselves, and so God would send these people, these men and these women called judges, and the judges would call them back to himself. They would call them to repentance, and when they came back to the Lord, everything changed for a moment, and then they got back into it. And then they got delivered. And then they got back into sin. And then they got delivered. They, they went through this cycle year after year, generation after generation. And now they're waiting. They're waiting. Is there any way that someone can bring stability to the chaos? They're waiting for a king. The whole book of Judges is about we're waiting for a king. And it ends like this. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because there was no king. Right? And now we come to First Samuel. And we're introduced, or we're brought into this waiting as we enter the story. And Israel's waiting is represented by Hannah's waiting. right? So follow me for a second. We're introduced to Hannah's story through her husband, Elkanah. And Elkanah is introduced like this. He's given a genealogy. And in the Old Testament, when you were given a genealogy, usually that meant you were a prominent person, maybe even a king. And so the author of 1 Samuel is giving us kind of this hint He's saying, oh, look, look, here's the king. The king is coming. And then you're expecting that, and then he's not the king. He's just an ordinary guy, faithful in his worship, faithful in his, his relationship with God, just an ordinary guy with an ordinary family. And just like any ordinary family, they've got drama, lots of drama. See, so y'all don't know when to say amen. This, their family has drama. And just like me. Listen, this is is how it gets set up. We're introduced to Elkanah, and then we realize that Elkanah's family has two wives. And now I'm just going to pause for a second. That you'll see in the Old Testament many examples of people with multiple wives, and you'll never see it uh, displayed well. (laughs) This is not not a, a suggestion, this is just saying what happened. And here we have Elkanah with two wives. The first is Peninnah. The second is Hannah. And Peninnah has many children. Hannah has no children. And here's the tension in the text. Hannah is waiting for a child. Hannah is waiting for the one that would would come, the one that was promised. And so now you have Israel waiting and Hannah is waiting. And what we see in this book is God does his best work in our waiting. And so what I want to start off with as we go in this book is what is our work in the waiting. First, we've got to look at the pain itself. We've got to look at the pain. So first, we've got to look at Hannah's pain. That's the first point, Hannah's pain. Well, the scene begins here with this. It begins in the house of God. And so year after year, Elkanah would go up to the house of God, and he was faithful. Right? He was in the house every time he was supposed to be in the house. He's there faithfully worshiping the Lord, but this time they come to the house, we see some division. Look at verse 4. It says this, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife, and to all their sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, pause there for a second. I know this is language that if you're not familiar with the Bible, you may not know what's going on. But what would happen is they would go up to the tabernacle to worship. And when they went to the tabernacle to worship, it was actually allowed that you would have a fellowship meal with your family and friends as part of the sacrifice. And so you would take a portion of the sacrifice and you would eat it together in the presence of the Lord. And so as they're about to have this fellowship meal... Elkanah is passing out the portions of the meal to the different family members, and he comes to Panina's children, and he gives them their portion, but then he turns to Hannah, who has no children, and gives her double what he gives to Panina's family. You catch that? What he's saying is, I am giving you double, even though you have no children, you have my heart. Hannah was the favored one. Hannah was the loved one. Hannah, there's already division right now in the house. Now, Peninnah didn't appreciate the favoritism, so look what happens in verse 6. It says, and her rival, that's the word it's used, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year by year. This just kept going. In other words, Peninnah is now hurt because Someone else is being shown the favor, and so Penina, as most people, you know, hurt people, hurt people. This is what happens. Penina takes her hurt and her pain, and now she puts it on Hannah and starts to provoke her. She starts to mock her. Don't you wish you were like me? Look at all my kids. Look look at how the Lord has blessed me. Look, Look at all these things. She would mock her and provoke her until it irritated her. But here's what bothered Hannah the most it wasn't the mockery. It was the mystery of knowing God's sovereignty. Here's what it is. It's the mystery that that in her suffering, somehow God was still sovereign. Did you catch it? The the text says it twice. It says, the Lord closed her womb. The Lord closed her womb. Why? Why? I mean, how is this even possible? How would God allow this to happen? How would God give Peninnah all the children and Hannah no children? How could God let this happen? If God is in control, if God is sovereign, how could this happen? See, the pain was obvious, but the purpose wasn't. And so verse 7, it says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Listen, pain waits between the suffering and and the sovereignty. That's where pain exists. It it waits in between. A man named Nicholas Wolterstorff heard these last words from his son. His son said, I can't wait to get back to the mountains again. It would be the last words that he would hear unknowingly. And then just a few days later, it was a Sunday afternoon at 3.30 p.m., he gets a phone call from an unknown person. He answers the phone and And on the other line, there's a man who says, uh, is this the father of Eric? And he says, yes, this is him. And and he says, Mr. Wolterstorff, I have a a bad, terrible news to deliver to you. He said, uh, Eric was out climbing in the mountains, and he had an accident. And sir, I don't know how to say this other than Eric is dead. And as he told this story, he said, For just three seconds, there was this peaceful, serene feeling that came over him, and then there was this cold, burning pain. Here was this man, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who was a prestigious Yale professor of religion and philosophy, who is now faced with the reality that his son is gone. His son is dead. And now he had to wrestle with this real reality that was no longer a book or a theory or, or something he talked about in the classroom, but this was something in his own life. He was in uncharted territory. And so he began to journal his thoughts. And actually, his thoughts would later be published as a book called Lament for a Son. If you've never heard of it, I highly recommend it. It's a phenomenal book on lament. But he, he journaled out his laments. He journaled out his prayers and, and I just want to give you just a sense of what he, what he talks about or how he talks. Look at what he, or Listen to what he says. Eric is gone. Here and now he is gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. How is faith to endure, O oh God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You've allowed mountains of suffering to pile up, all without lifting a finger that we could see. Please explain yourself. He was waiting in the mystery. He was raw. He was real, right? He's wondering, God, how could you allow this? How could this happen? That's what it looks like to to really be honest and real with God. It's it's this mystery of his sovereignty that's really beyond our understanding, right? We know he's in control. We we know that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We we know the scriptures that say that that he numbers the hairs on our head. We we know that it says he cares for even the birds of the air, that his breath fills our life, right? We know these things to be true. Maybe maybe you've grown up around the church. Maybe you've read the Bible a bunch of times and and you've got some kind of idea of what the truth might be. You you maybe even consider yourself a an amateur theologian. You you know how God works in the Bible. But then when you go through something that's not a theory, it's not a book, it's not a movie you watched, but it's your life, and you start to wonder, where is God? Where is he in this moment? I've seen him in the other times of my life, but right now in the suffering and the circumstances, I can't seem to see the purpose behind all this pain. And sometimes the silence is worse than the suffering. Sometimes it's harder to just not know what's going on. Have you ever been there before? That, that's where Hannah is right now. Right? It's in those moments that, that God is calling us to trust who he is, not where his hand is. In other words, we have to trust his heart when we can't trace his hand, when we can't trace why he would allow this, or, or what he's doing in the moment, or what, what might be happening in the greater picture. When we can't trace what's happening next, We have to remember who is doing it. We have to know that our limitations aren't limiting God. Just because I can't understand it doesn't mean God doesn't understand it. Just because I can't make sense of it doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan. This is the mystery. This is the mystery that in the midst of our suffering, somehow God is sovereign. And what do you do with that mystery? You take it to him. You pour it out to God. This is what happens next Hannah's prayer. Look look at what happens next. Hannah goes up to the house of God. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says this She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah starts to come undone emotionally. She starts to lose it. She she can't control her emotions. She's just letting go in the presence of God. She's letting all her passion out, all her emotion out. She's coming undone. And in the midst of her desperation, right? she, she is praying for her life. She makes a vow. She says to the Lord, if you'll give me this son, I'll give him right back to you. If you give me a son, I'll give him to you, and he will serve you all the days of his life. He will be in your service. She makes this vow as she's pouring out her heart. She's giving everything she has to God. And as she's praying, Eli the priest in the tabernacle, he sees her. He watches her. He observes her. And and he sees her losing herself emotionally. He sees her pouring out her heart, and he misinterprets the whole situation. He judges her from a distance because he doesn't know her situation. He doesn't know her story. He doesn't know her pain. And so he sees a woman who who looks like she's too emotional in church. He sees a woman who looks like maybe there's something off. And he actually thinks she's drunk. This is what he says in verse 14. He says, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I mean, here's this woman going through the hardest moment in her life, and she's looking for relief in the house of God, and instead she finds ridicule. It was pain upon pain. And so then Hannah responds. Look at what she says in verse 15. She says, "'No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord.'" Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. In other words, her her rival wife, Penina, may hate her. She may provoke her. Her her husband, Elkanah, may not understand her and and be able to relate to her. Her priests may judge her and, and question her. But she knows that there's a God who hears her. She's not some worthless woman who can be forgotten. She's not some worthless woman that can be dismissed. She knows that there is a person and a place that she can take her pain. It's the God who hears. It's the God who hears her in that moment. God hears our pain through our prayers. There's a man who wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. His name is Mark Vrogop. And uh, he says this about prayer and lament. I think it's it's just an incredible definition of, of lament. Look at what he says. Lament is different than crying and complaining because lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament is talking to God about our pain and suffering, and it has a unique purpose, trust. It's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Without hope in God's deliverance and the conviction that he's all-powerful, there would be no reason to lament when pain invaded our life. To learn how to lament, we resolve to talk to God, to keep praying. Lament is an invitation to turn to God while in the pain. You catch that? In other words, what he's saying is is we don't deny the darkness. We we don't pretend like it's not there. The pain's not there. The, The struggle isn't there. Rather, we engage the darkness with what God has given us, this tool called lament. See, lament is focusing our heart on God. That's actually what makes it different than grumbling or complaining because anybody can grumble. Anybody can complain. I mean, anybody can basically do what, what we often do, which is, man, this is so hard. This is terrible. I hate this. Why is this happening? Why, why would God allow this? Anybody can complain and grumble because grumbling is complaining without faith. It's, it's, you never take it to God. You, you just take it to you know, your friend or your spouse or you take it to your counselor or whoever it may be, and those things are good. You need to talk to people. But listen, there's a difference between complaining and lamenting. Lamenting is having the courage to take it to God himself. It's saying, God has invited me. It's complaining with faith. Because anybody can accuse God from a distance, but lament is saying, I have the courage to go to God himself. I'm going to take this burden to him. I'm going to take this into his presence, and I'm going to let him deal with it. Because I know he cares for me. Listen, God understands. Your your spouse may not understand. Your friend may not understand. Your neighbor may not understand. Nobody in your life may understand your pain fully, but God understands your pain. And so what he does is he says, I want you to come bring it to me. I don't want you to pretend like it's not there. I don't want you to live as if it's better than it really is. I want you to bring it into my presence, and I want you to tell me how it is. I don't want you to hold anything back. I'm not going to judge I'm not going to complain back to you. I'm not going to point it in your face. I'm I'm not going to say, you know, you should have done this earlier or you should have done this nicer or whatever. God says, just come tell me what's going on. Hannah doesn't hold anything back. She's pouring out her soul to her father. Because God understands. The psalmist says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. Right? There's healing through prayer. There's healing in the lament. That's where it is. There's sustaining joy there. there there's sustaining perseverance there. Listen, you look down at verse 18. It says at the end that Hannah, it says, when the woman went away, uh, she ate and her face was no longer sad. What's amazing there is at that point, nothing had really changed other than Hannah prayed her circumstances didn't change she she didn't all of a sudden have a son she didn't have everything she desired her losses didn't become wins nothing in the outer exterior visibility thing you know nothing nothing visible had changed but internal in Hannah everything had changed she knew god had heard her she knew she took her pain to him and even if nothing else changed she was healed in the depths of her soul because God knew and God heard. What, what, what are you holding back from him today? Like what, what are you keeping to yourself? What, what burden are you holding on to? The, the Lord is saying, I, I want you to lament. You have the freedom to lament. Maybe it's like Hannah, there's things that you've lost or things you've never had or, or things you've been waiting on for decades or, or however long it's been, but, but you haven't lamented properly. You haven't brought it to the Father. You, you've maybe brought it to a friend or you've brought it to a spouse or you've, you've kept it inside and tried to deal with it yourself. But God is inviting you to bring it to him, to cast it upon him, to give him your pain. And when God hears our prayers, when he, when he takes our pain, it becomes our praise. And this is the last point, Hannah's praise. So Hannah leaves Eli in the house of God with this renewed sense of God's presence. It says that uh, she came hungry and distressed, but she left uh, eating, and and, and her face was no longer sad. And so God was clearly up to something, but it hadn't happened yet. And so now we look at verse 20, and we see that God had remembered her. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him From the Lord. The name Samuel means heard of God. In other words, God had heard her prayer. He he heard her and he came to her side. He, He heard her prayer in the midst of her pain and now he answers. But Samuel would actually be the turning point for the whole nation. So when God hears Hannah's prayer, when God hears Hannah's faith that she clings to him in the midst of her pain, he doesn't just hear Hannah. He hears all of Israel's pain. He hears the whole nation. And so Samuel would grow up and Samuel would become that transition figure. We're going to look as we see the whole book that Samuel becomes the last judge. He, he transitions to this, this season of, of Israel becoming a kingdom and the Davidic kingdom being established. And so what's happening here is God is not just hearing Hannah. He's hearing all his people. He's hearing all the people who are crying out. He's hearing the longing. And now the time comes for Hannah to do what she had said she would do, that she would give her son back, that she would wean her son and then give him to the tabernacle. And when she does that, there's this praise that happens. I mean, could you imagine for a moment that Hannah had been waiting for this son for years, decades. We don't know how long it had been. She had been waiting for this son, and as soon as she gets him, and the Lord hears her prayer, she gives him back. I mean, could you imagine how hard that would have been, how emotional that would have been, how how terrifying that would have been to give back what the Lord had given? And yet she does it with joy. Why? Because it was never about the child. It was always about the Lord. See, Hannah, Hannah wasn't concerned about the child. Hannah was concerned that the Lord had heard. And now she knew the Lord had heard. The Lord wasn't against her. He was for her. And so she prays in chapter 2. She says this, My heart exalts in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And over and over, we're going to look at it next week, in her prayer you see that Hannah is saying, God, this was never about me. This is always about you. And now I've seen you. I've known that you hear. I've known that you save. I know that you are the God of great reversals. You're the God who can change everything. You're the God that can turn it all around. You have the power to turn any situation upside down because he brings life out of barrenness. He brings joy out of sorrow. He brings peace out of pain. He brings the proud low and the humble high. This is the great reversal. This is what's about to happen in all of God's people and Hannah gets the first fruits of it. She sees that everything is changing because of this. And in fact, this great reversal... Uh, would show up again in the song of a young Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary's song was called the Magnifica. It has many parallels to Hannah's song. And many scholars believe that Mary, when she wrote her song, looked back on Hannah and realized that her story was wrapped up in Hannah's story. And she used Hannah's song to kind of mold her own song. And this is what Mary realizes when the gift of God is given in Mary's womb. She bursts into praise, just like Hannah. In Luke chapter 1, she says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked at me. He's seen me in my pain. And he's going to turn it around. This is a powerless woman who who had nothing. And yet here she is in Bethlehem, visited by God. This teenage mother who would bear the king of Israel. This forgotten girl who would hold in the womb the hope of humanity. What could be more upside down? This is how the gospel works. This is the hope that we have that fuels our praise. See, praise knows a God of great reversals. It knows a God who can turn everything around. See, we know a Savior who came to exalt the humble, those at the bottom of their pain, those at the bottom of depression and despair, those at the bottom of division and turmoil, those at the bottom of hatred and bigotry, those at the bottom of sin and suffering. Jesus came not just to look upon us, but to identify with us. He identifies with us in in His humility on the cross. He died the most humble of deaths, a cross made for criminals, people like you and me. He bled for our brokenness. It's the pain that He endured on the cross that would turn the world upside down. Because unlike anything else, it exalts the broken. It exalts the weary. It exalts the thirsty and the hungry. It exalts the burden and the worn out. The cross is the great reversal. The cross is God's grace to the humble, to say, this is what I will do. I can turn it around. There's a lady by the name of Anne Voskamp, who's an author, and she, uh, she grew up struggling with depression and struggling with the pain that she experienced in her family. And she's told the story of when she was 16, that, that struggle with depression and her pain kind of welled up and and, uh, she began to struggle to the point that she started to harm herself. She would go into her back porch at her house and she would take glass jars and she would smash them on the ground and she would stand among all the glass and she would take a piece of the glass and she would begin to cut her wrists. And as she harmed herself, this is what she said. She said, no one taught me how to get the darkness, the fear, the ache, the hell out of me. And I thought to myself, maybe you could drain the pain from yourself. And this went on for years after years after years as she struggled and and couldn't make sense of it. Until one day when she got older, she finally gave her life to Jesus. and, And she said, as I came to know Christ, it was not just some theory, but I realized I had come to know a God who understood me. Because no one else in my life understood my pain. No one else in my life understood what it was like for me to experience what I was experiencing. But now I came to know a God who knew. I came to know a God who understood. I came to know a God who entered into that pain on the cross so that he could deal with the pain. So that he could give hope to my suffering. And actually, to this day, she says this, she says, now I, I take a black marker every morning and I draw a cross on my wrist. And that cross reminds me that the cross conquered all my pain. It's greater than my pain. The cross is what speaks life into death. God has looked upon the broken and the humble with his grace in Jesus. And so today Jesus looks upon the humble the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He can turn our pain into praise because of what Jesus has done. He invites us into that. He says, I want you to take your pain to me because I'm the one who can deal with it. I can turn it around, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me with your pain. You have to have the courage to say, I'm going to take it to you. I'm I'm not going to hold it to myself or or bring it to someone else who doesn't have the power to change it. I'm going to take it to you, Lord. I'm going to take it into your presence and let you deal with it. It's what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Faith is simply just trusting in the Lord. You're, You're turning from trusting yourself, and now you're going to trust in the Lord with your pain, with your sin, with your failure, with whatever you have. Lord, I give it to you. That's what he's inviting us into today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you all the glory for what you've done. We're so grateful that you're Spirit today is calling us to yourself because we know that only in you is there hope. Only in you is there transformation. And so we ask that your spirit today would call us, draw us, pull us in closer to you. May we find a God who understands. May we find a God who hears. But not only that, a God who who knows and understands but has the power to transform us. Lord, today, whoever you may be, calling to yourself, whether it's your own people who already know you and need you today, or whether it's someone here who who doesn't know you and for the first time may want to come to know you. God, may you call us. May we find you in this moment as we seek you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand